0: Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Emma Aviette, a PhD student of English literature and current postgraduate web and communications intern. In this episode of Beyond the Books, I had the chance to speak with Dr. Isabel Segui, a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. I got to learn more about the fascinating research she is conducting on women's nonfiction filmmaking in Peru, as well as ask her about her journey into academia and receiving the prestigious Leverhulme Fellowship. Isabel explains the methods she uses to document the collaborative efforts of female-driven films, and we discuss how these efforts have been left out of film history. From investigating machismo in the film industry to identifying the benefits of emotion and intuition when making documentaries, Isabel covers a wide range of fascinating topics. Her unique, insightful, and thought-provoking research was a joy to learn about, and if anyone is looking for some good documentary recommendations, you found the right podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy. Hi, Isabel. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. So before we get started in some more questions about your research, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit of your background and your journey into becoming an academic. When did you realize that you wanted to study film? Well, um, I think I am academic late
1: bloomer, if that expression exists, because I started my PhD in my 40s, and I had a family and a very stable emotional life. So, for me, doing a PhD was like a present I was giving to myself because suddenly I was being paid for spending time on my own, just reading, writing without interruptions, and traveling, talking to people, having fun. So, before my PhD, I had been working for 10 years in cooperation for development in NGOs, but I was very critical about this sector. I had some bad experiences. I witnessed mismanagement of money and kind of dubious political activities in some places I worked. So I started focusing more on the aspect of education for development in the West and less on managing field projects. And of course I was against uh, all the idea of development because it's colonial. So my work in education began to be more and more radical, let's say. And in 2012, I organized with a group of volunteers, all young and brilliant women, a film series called Resistances and Dissidences. And this film series was very successful because we created a very old program and because we organized it with, uh, in collaboration with the University of Valencia, and that allowed us to screen in great venues and arrive at many b- people. One of the films we wanted to screen was The Clandestine Nation, which is a Bolivian film by the Ucamao group. And it's a film about the complex construction of indigenous identities. Mm-hmm. And the film was not available anywhere. So we asked for a copy directly to its director, Jorge Sangines, who very kindly sent it to us. And after getting to know better the, wo- the work of this group, the group Ucamao, we decided that we wanted to do a retrospective at the University of Valencia. So they sent me to Bolivia, to La Paz, to get the films, which I did. But I also spent a month working at the Ucamau Foundation where I discovered an unknown archive. That was, this archive was not open to the public. So when I was granted access to the files and I saw the richness present in those disorganized and variegated documents, so I decided to do a PhD then. And this career change was facilitated by the fact that the economic crisis, the consequences of the economic crisis of 2008 were looming in almost every sector in, in Spain. And soon there was no money to renew my contract in the NGO. So I took advantage of the break and of being unemployed. And I did a master working on Ucamau. And immediately after, I applied for a PhD in St. Andrews. I chose St Andrews because at the time Dennis Hanlon an expert in Ucamau was working at the film studies department and Dennis was very enthusiastic with the idea of supervising my project and I owe him a, a debt of gratitude because he believed in this project a lot so then I got a full scholarship and moved with my family to Scotland in 2014 and the wow. history
0: I mean, that's amazing. I love how you said that your PhD was like that kind of gift to yourself after years working for these NGOs. That's amazing. Um, and so then that kind of brings me to your current position as a Lever Hume's early career fellow, where you focus on women's nonfiction filmmaking in Peru from the 1970s to 2020. How did you come across this topic and what got you interested in it?
1: Well, uh, the, idea, the initial idea of my PhD was not focused on women. I was Mm -hmm. interested in exploring the Ucamo group, how they actually handed the the enunciatory position, handed over the enunciatory position to the indigenous subjects that appear in their films. And I wanted to know if the urban filmmakers were really handing over the voice to the Quechua and Aymara Mm -hmm. peasants. And if so, if this process, this mediation process was, I don't know, fair or how it worked, I don't know. However, after my first field trip, I realized that in the production teams of Ucamau and of almost all the production teams in in positional filmmaking in the Andes, there were many women that had been erased from the official history. So I decided to change my thesis and write about the mechanisms of erasure of these women, also trying to bring them to the forefront forefront in the historical narrative. in fact I discovered something very illuminating. I discovered that women are ever present in oral history but they disappear in the written accounts. So since then since then that like my principal goal has been inscribing these women filmmakers in the official history. And now in this postdoctoral project what I'm doing is writing a history of non-fiction filmmaking in Peru made by women.
0: That's amazing. I know that you were previously asked to write a chapter about this as well. Bursting Lima's Film Bubble, Women in the Contemporary Non-Fiction Filmic Scene in Peru. And in that chapter, one of your really strong points is that some female directors are left out of the canon of Peruvian cinema due to a biased colonial and masculinist perspective, which highly values works from a more European auteur perspective. Could you explain what an auteurist approach to film is versus a non-auteurist approach? And why do you think that women filmmakers tend to create non-auteurist documentaries, at least in Peru? Mm.
1: Well, my, my approach is proudly anti authorist mm. Autorism is a perspective in film studies that has become majoritarian, but it's not appropriate to understand most of film processes and products. Mm. This, this trend started in the 60s when the French critics at the influential film journal Calles du Cinema made Trendy an approach that basically responded to their own tastes and hierarchies of value mm. as young male cinephiles. And they developed this loose theory, the camera stilo, etc. And we are stuck with it and with the devastating consequences of historical exclu- exclusion that it has caused. So, using an authorist perspective in, in film is almost absurd in many cases because all films are done collectively. And we should make instead an effort to investigate how distributed creativity works in any film process if we really want to make rigorous scholarship. The problem is that this perspective was so prestigious and pervasive that it has been exported everywhere outside France. And it becomes a huge obstacle when analyzing non-industrial cinemas. Or in my case, I realized that applying an authorist approach to the analysis of oppositional films made in Peru or Bolivia made no sense. When we are talking about cinematic processes that are supported by by an extended network of, of friends and family, and in these shoots everyone multitasks so the director is for instance the the same person can be director and driver the screenwriter is the sound person the translator also performs and also takes the still pictures so all of them contribute with their ingenuity and creativity to the project. And many of the people in these roles are women. Often, for instance, the wife of the director or, or the wife of the cinematographer. And because they are the wives of, of these men, their, their contribution is belittled. Their labor is, their labor is, is understood like help mm. because that is what wives do helping mm-hmm. their husbands as uh, so the logical continuation or the natural continuation of their domestic work. But these women were not helping. They were full-fledged members of the teams. They they were neat contributors in creative and non-creative roles. And although there was a clear sexual division of labor in place, we have to interrogate uh, all these things. And also they, they suffered a lot of machismo, no? and, and this sexual division of, of labor was also consequence of the machismo. Sometimes these women broke with their compañeros and started making their own films, liberated from this structure, while others accrued lots of power within these male chauvinistic structures. Each case is different, but all of them deserve historicization. And as you see, in order to historicize this complexity, we need to get rid of the authorist paradigm. Mm. And regarding your second question, Uh whether women filmmakers tend to create non-authorist documentaries. Well, in general, documentary making is a less ego-driven practice than fiction. And also, in general, you will find many more women working in documentary than in fiction. But this is a double-edged sword. In, In the negative side, this happens because women are not given many opportunities to lead fiction projects. Even in wealthy film industries such as Hollywood, there, there is an enormous disparity of or a sex divide in the access to resources. Women are not, not trusted with big budgets, they are not given the same opportunities. And documentary is something that often can be done with smaller crews, with smaller budgets, in a quicker, independent, and more cost effective way. That's the negative reason why women make m- more non fiction films. On the positive side, women are drawn to documentary because women filmmakers have had historically a great commitment to with reality. As, as creators, they, they don't have this need of playing the demiurge. They, they love to be in touch with people to address burning social issues and try and make social changes through cinema. So women documentary makers have developed this connection with reality and real people since the beginning of the 20th century. For instance, in Scotland, we have the magnificent example of Ruby and Marion Grierson, the sisters of John, who had a much more interesting approach to documentary, but their figures has have been also erased. So it's not only a Peruvian thing, but you can apply this framework and follow this genealogy of women nonfiction filmmaking in Peru too.
0: Yeah, that I didn't even think about those economic factors pressuring women into that field in some ways. I guess this kind of leads me into my next question, which is in that chapter you also highlight a documentary female um, filmmaker, Lorena Best, and describe her approach as cinema based on sensation, intuition, and emotion as well as often personal connection to whatever she is filming. Is this a paradigm shift from what might be thought of as traditional documentary filmmaking? How does this lend to a horizontal and less traumatic method of documentary filmmaking for the subjects of the film?
1: yeah, well in I compare in the chapter to film processes that are very similar in their objectives, the Fontainas trilogy by Pedro Costa, who's a Portuguese filmmaker, and uh, about to take off, it's a film by Lorena Best. These two films document the demolition of a popular neighborhood and the forced relocation of their dwellers. In Pedro Costa's film, um, it's a neighborhood in Lisbon, and in the case of Lorena Best, it is a neighborhood in Lima. Pedro Costa ultimately established a very intimate relationship with the dwellers of Fontaiñas, but first he clashed with them in the first film of the trilogy because he arrived at the the slum with a professional crew, and his filming process was very invasive and extractivist. He learned about this experience, and in his second film, the team was very small and his practices were more respectful and loving. In Lorena's best case, she is always respectful and loving, I am actually working with her right now in a film co-directed by her and Sara Guerrero. And I can see firsthand her filmmaking practices, which are exquisite in ethical Mm. terms, but also nourishing for the team and for the film subjects alike. And it's it's a privilege working with within this feminine framework, let's say, because the entire production is focused on the human process, not in the film product. Also, the research process we conduct for the films is parallel to my own Research process, so both processes feed each other. So I, I am applying here kind of a practice-based research method. Oh
0: wow, that's really fascinating! I can't wait to see more of that Lorena Best collaboration that might be coming out. What one aspect of your research, which I found really fascinating, um, when I was reading your chapter, is your emphasis on oral history and interviews as a form of your research methodology. What do you think is the benefit of oral histories in creating nuanced analyses of film and the culture that surrounds it? Will an incorporation of oral histories into research methodology help shift the underlying gender dynamics in the historiography of filmmaking and curating?
1: Hmm.
0: Well, in any
1: research process, you start by getting to know the available literature and archival materials. And... But if you don't find anything significant, you ought to create your own sources. So, in-depth mm-hmm. interviews and other types of communication, such as uh, form informal conversations, WhatsApp messaging, etc., are excellent ways to dig the information that will be the basis of your scholarship. So, mm-hmm. oral history is always going to be a complement and enrich the the mere textual analysis in the case of film studies. In any case, it is vital for an anti-authorist approach, such as my 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 approach. I need to talk to everyone, not only the directors who normally have a very established discourse that they tend to repeat. Celebrate directors are like a little bit like rock and roll stars they They repeat themselves and they refer to to their own obsessions over and over. That is why it is important to talk to other people that participated in the films in other capacities and also. I always say that the director often tells the same story because they are permanently asked the same questions. We, the researchers, should change the questions. And if we don't have to be afraid to ask difficult questions because Mm -hmm. asking questions, even personal questions, is not offensive. It's good research practice. And you will need to ask personal questions if you intend to analyze gender dynamics regarding labor and other aspects. I think scholars often practice a sort of uh, self censorship. Probably they consider talking about personal stuff just gossip. But for me, it's primary material for a rigorous scholarship.
0: So, in your book chapter, as well as in other articles you've written, such as Beatriz Palacio, Ucamo's, yeah, Ucamo. Ucamo's Cornerstone, 1974 to 2003, and Authorism, Machismo, Leninismo, and other issues, women's labor, and Andean oppositional film production. You discuss this erasure of women's labor in the history more in depth. Why do you think this occurs and what steps can be taken to change this? I know you kind of touched on some of these topics.
1: Well, as I have said, in any film you watch, there are women working behind the camera. So a feminist researcher makes the effort to find these women, name them, describe their work and give value to the tasks they lead. For instance... There is a scholar I admire, Erin Hill. She coined a a term to refer to the work that the secretaries in Hollywood did. This term is creative service, and it refers to all the boring, repetitive, but necessary tasks Mm. assumed by the secretaries and taking off from the plate of those men in creative roles, allowing them to have time and mental space to create. So this service to creativity has to be acknowledged as crucial as a crucial contribution to the making of a film. In the case of artisanal cinemas, it is even more poignant because often the producers of these low budget films are women. Often the wife of the director is the producer of his films. And these women sacrifice a lot. They sacrifice their time working 24 seven for the projects and they sacrifice their personal autonomy, their own personal projects. They become creative servants and normally they do so because they have faith in a cause, Mm. something that they consider bigger than them. It can be a political cause or just the ego of their husbands or it depends. In any case, they make the films viable, but they get no public recognition, no retribution for their effort, etc. So I think it's time that we film historians recognize the invisibilized types of labor and ascribe value
0: to them. Because
1: without these women and their labor, the films would not exist.
0: Yeah. So for anyone who is listening who might be interested in Peruvian female-driven documentaries or even just Peruvian cinema in general, if you have, you know, other suggestions, what films do you recommend they watch to get into the topic?
1: Mm. So in online, they can watch on YouTube, for instance, all the films by Nora de Isque, mm. uh, so, Peruvian filmmaker. She she led very interesting processes of collaboration between herself, who is an upper class woman from Lima. Mm-hmm. But she worked with nice subjects of her country, such as Quechua and Afro-Peruvian peasants. And also mm-hmm. on YouTube you can find Maria Varea's films, which are films made in alliance with the women dwellers of the slums of Lima. Also very interesting processes. And Online, yeah, but you probably can find some of the films of diasporic Peruvian women filmmakers based mm. in Europe, such as Mari Jiménez and Hedi Honigman. And there's also a, a Peruvian service of streaming called Cine Aparte that mm. hosts many titles. But maybe starting by watching Runan Kaiku by Nora de Izcue, Antuca by Maria Barea, Del Verbo Amar by Mari Jiménez and Metali Melancolia by Hedi Honigman, which are on YouTube or online, or mail, that would be a good beginning. And this reminds me that I have to start planning a retrospective in Edinburgh in 2023, which is one of the public engagement outcomes of my research project. Oh. So all these titles will be for sure included
0: there. Oh, amazing. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. And all it's so great to hear that some of these are like as accessible as being able to watch them on YouTube. I'll definitely be able to, to find those. I'm excited. Um, okay, so kind of moving more to your Liver Hume Fellowship that you're now working on. How did you decide to work with your current supervisor, Charlotte Gleghorn, as your mentor? Uh, had you worked together previously? And if not, how did you know how to approach her and work with her in developing your Liver Hume Fellowship proposal?
1: Yeah, well, I am in Edinburgh, thanks to Dr. Charlotte Gleihorn, without Mm. any doubt. I met her in 2014, at the beginning of my PhD. Uh, That year she was organizing a very interesting speaking series on Latin American topics. And my supervisor in St. Andrews made me go to all the talks that were delivered in Glasgow and Edinburgh by scholars based in Scotland. And, well, he sent me there mostly to network and it was an excellent suggestion because in the very first session I met Charlotte who made me feel at home from the very first moment. She, she's a very welcoming person. She's this type of brilliant scholar that behaves in a very humble and very sweet way without any arrogance, without pulling rank. And, well, another thing that helped a lot is that we have always communicated in Spanish. And, well, that I think that helped us Create a stronger bond, at least on my side. Yeah, and well, we we also share our research interests. She she did her PhD on Latin American women filmmakers, and mm-hmm. she's a specialist in indigenous cinema, which is a research area that I'm always tangentially touching mm-hmm. because I research Andean cinema. So we we have always exchanged materials and ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, Besides, during this year, she has invited me to participate in academic events. She has organized such as panels in conferences, and I have also invited her to the things that I have organized. So relationship has been always a fruitful one. Mm. And after my PhD, I approached her because I wanted to apply for one of the short fellowships of the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. And she helped me to apply, and I did not get the fellowship. But soon after she sent me the info of the opening of the processes to apply for the British Academy and the Leverhulme Postdoctoral Fellowships at the School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures was publicizing. And finally I got the Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship which is actually much better than the fellowship that was offered by the Institute for Advanced Studies. So you never know with these things, it's weird. (laughs) So Charlotte has always been there for me and I'm super thankful because she's the perfect mentor. She's, she believes in you, she nourishes you and never imposes anything. And um, well, of course, I am very autonomous, so I try not to bother her unnecessarily because she's very busy. And at this point of my career, I don't need supervision. But but I know that she's always there and that I can count on her.
0: That's so great. You, like you said, you don't always know what processes are going to work out when you're applying to fellowship. So do you have any recommendation for people who are applying now to the Hume Early Career Fellowship for their application or just in general?
1: Mm, yes, I think that you should make an effort to write for non-experts. Mm. So like cutting down, down the jargon, never make the reader do the heavy lifting because, well, this is actually a recommendation that my PhD supervisor, Leshu 13, gave me and I always apply. But in the case of uh, research proposals, addressed to the Leverhulme Trust, I think is key. Mm. Does that not mean that you cannot use complex or sophisticated ideas, but they have to be clearly expressed. Mm. And well, in this case, the staff of the research office at Literatures, Languages and Cultures are experts on this type of applications and they help you to submit the best possible proposal. And I'm very grateful to Laura Tomlinson, Janet Black and Professor Greg Walker mm. Because their reviews and advice were very, very, very useful.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. So, yeah, so really reach out, I guess, to that community as well. Um, So how did you find planning for and managing your project amidst the disruption of COVID and the lockdowns? With its international focus, how have you adapted your project so that you could continue with research, even when there have been restrictions on international travel, conferences, events, etc. Yeah, everything
1: has changed, of course. Uh, I submitted my project in February 2020, unaware of what was coming. So when I started my postdoc on September 2020, I needed to change all my plans. Mm. For starters, I had to plan to go to Peru for some months during my first year, and I won't be going until the second semester of the second year. But it's okay. The good thing is that everybody has been working online, and I have been able to interview people, watch movies, ask for archival material and so on. So, well, um, that's, you have to adapt, but I'm looking forward to going back to the physical contact with people and objects because my research has a highly emotional component and that connection is difficult to achieve online. Also, it is very di- tiring to be online all day, and humanly, it's not as rewarding as meeting people in real life, in their houses, in their places. Also, I, I really need to connect with the geographical space to grasp what is going on in these people's lives and works. And I'm very fond of fieldwork in that sense, of ethnographical approaches to research based in feelings, perception, intuition. Normally, I allow my subjectivity to mingle with people and places. That's why I love being a researcher, mostly. Mm. But in in any case, I have been able to do lots of things during my first year. I have been writing a lot. I have six publications forthcoming in 2022 and 2023. And also, I am part of the curating team of an international exhibition that will be held in Berlin next summer about global feminist nonfiction filmmaking in the 70s and 80s. So I haven't been idle. It has been productive, but I really need to have a closer contact with the subjects of my research now to go forward.
0: Yeah, of course. That's great that you found, you know, that balance. Though it sounds like you it definitely sounds like you've been very productive. So I guess I'll always end on this one question that I ask almost everyone who comes on the podcast: um, Where has been your favorite place in Scotland, and why?
1: Well, I love Scotland in, in general. I love Scottish people. They are open, warm, everything. Yeah. But, well, I have traveled a lot in around the country in my years here. But I really like the islands. Mm. And I have been in various islands, like Harris and Lewis, Skye, Aran. All of them are amazing. But I recently went to Orkney. Oh, wow. And that was incredible. Oh. Especially the Neolithic sites. Because you can visit... Uh, and very well preserved Neolithic village, Scarabrae for instance, but also the like the religious or ceremonial sites that are mm. perfect, fe- perfectly embedded in the landscape, so you can feel the the power of these places like straightforwardly.
0: Mm. I don't know. That's amazing. It's awesome.
1: It's Yeah, I think in Scotland, you develop this capacity to connect with the landscape, like in a pantheistic way or something.
0: Yeah. It's hard not to, when you're out there, like feel yourself going back in time and imagining everything that's happened there. And it's, it is just beautiful. I'm excited to get back out there again now that things are slightly more normal. Um uh-huh. Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Isabel. It's been absolutely amazing having you on. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of those papers that you're talking about come out and to see more of your wonderful work. So thank you. No, thanks to you Emma. Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures. Thank you so much for listening and tune in again soon.